2: Hotcakes, welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we examine the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Mariana East hegler
3: And I'm Amy Westerbelt. This is a little bit of a departure for us. We're talking about food writing, but we're talking about it in the context of where climate comes in, which is a lot of places.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We bought in uh, a very special hot cake (laughs) (laughs) named David Tamarkin. David is the chief editor at Epicurious. And we actually met him because he was interviewing us for an article about reducing one's consumption of meat and particularly beef and how that interacts with climate action. And I was like, you know what? Why don't you come on the show? Because you're doing some interesting stuff at Epicurious and we need to talk about it.
3: Yeah, totally. I actually, that conversation with David kind of got me off of beef altogether. I was very minimally eating it like here and there to begin with, but but we had this conversation and I was like, well, I try to buy grass-fed and this and that. And he was like, yeah, like we kind of realized that that is just... There is no way to, like, sustainably eat beef. And that got me thinking. I mean, I had been thinking about it, but it got me thinking more. And then the more I looked into it, I was like, yeah, I don't need this. I don't need this in my life. Uh Oh,
2: wow. So, Wow, I didn't know that. Yes. I'm here changing the world, David. Yeah. Um, Yeah, another thing, you know, we talked about a lot of the barriers to getting climate into food writing, including believe it or not, but you should believe it. Machismo. Machismo yeah. is a big reason you don't hear about climate and food writing. We're gonna get into all of that. Data has some great recommendations if you wanna get into climate reading from like the poetry and fiction standpoint. Yeah. We talked about that stupid watermelon ham that's been running around the internet. We get into all of it. Like there's no whole spark. So It's a great episode. One of the best conversations I've had in a while. So very excited to share it with you.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And if you want links to all of the articles that we talk about in here, plus some additional related content, you should subscribe to our newsletter starting at just $7 a month. Best deal going.
2: Yep. I know. We also have a free version, if that's a bit much for you right now, because we totally get it. There'll be more details about how to sign up for that in our show notes and how to find it. And now it's time to talk about climate.
3: Just a quick heads up here. We had some recording difficulties this time around, so ended up recording this interview via Zoom, which means the audio quality is not quite as good as we usually like but the content makes up for it.
2: When did you first become concerned about climate change? And when did you decide to try to bring that into your work at Epicurious?
0: It's definitely when I came to Epicurious about six years ago that I started thinking deeply about the relationship between cooking and climate change. You know, coming to Epicurious was a pivot in my career. I stopped you know, messing with restaurants and just focused solely on cooking, which is what I wanted to do. And, um, I started covering climate change in a way at Epicurious right from the beginning, you know, and we really did it through tackling food waste. And I think that food waste Uh. was the first, it was the most obvious place for us to start because, you know, especially in the kitchen, we have, we have a test kitchen. Um, I was being really adamant about us not wasting any food when we were testing recipes or not throwing away food. And, you know, I had food editors who were used to doing things like, a, you know, if a cake didn't work, you know, throw, just throwing out the cake. And by it didn't work, it could mean that it just didn't have, it needed a little more salt or, you know, it was a little bit dry. So I think it really started there. I was like, okay, this is, this is kind of gross. And then thinking about, oh, well, everybody's always wasting food in their kitchens all the time in the natural course of cooking. So then we started covering that and we, did, we went way in. We, we, we had a column called Wasteless for two years. And I'll be honest, I think we sort of ran out of things to, to say, ran out of tips to give about how to
1: uh-huh. um,
0: not waste food. I think just after two years, <laughs> after like 100 columns, we, we'd give all the tips we had. We were really scraping the bottom of the barrel. So we took a little break and then we came back again and started digging in a little bit deeper on uh, beef. And kind of focusing on um, just the emissions of the kitchen, because the kitchen is the most emissions-heavy room in the house.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so as someone who's not in, you know, traditional climate media, what sorts of outlets are you reading for climate news? What are the things that um, kind of like your go-to sources for for climate stories?
0: Yeah, they're not, they're not groundbreaking you know i i mm-hmm. uh it's 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 New York times i get that their climate newsletter um i get the hot take newsletter i get. bingo yeah. uh, that
3: was the right answer that was really that was all
1: that <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> the guardian of course i think is the leading publication on on climate change and i mean they seem oh, to be speaking yeah. the most seriously um and so i you know i read the guardian app and um You know, Twitter, I just, you know, I I just follow a bunch of people on Twitter that, you know, send me to the right places. And the other thing I'll say is that lately, in 2020 especially, um, I I haven't been getting climate news from this source, but I've been broadening my thinking on the subject with literature and poetry,
1: um, Mm -hmm. which I think
0: more and more is grappling with climate change. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I don't know what I'm... I don't know that I'm, like, learning anything new from it, but I'm definitely feeling, you know, a lot of... I mean, there were books that were written this year, like like Jenny O'Field's book, uh, Weather, which gave me just so much anxiety, so much appropriate anxiety. Um,
1: uh-huh.
0: and, I'm, and I already feel anxious about about climate yeah. change. So um, yeah. so I think that's a good, appropriate feeling to have. Um, and so, yeah, I'm finding that sort of... Yeah, that's becoming a, a a big part of my uh, climate media diet.
2: Yeah, no. Any other recommendations in the poetry and fiction field? I feel like our listeners would be craving that.
0: Yeah, so so weather was a great one, and then um, I feel like the companion book to weather this year was a book by Lydia Millet called A Children's Bible, uh, and I say it's a it's a companion piece because those two authors happen to be best friends, and they both oh. wrote novels about climate change this year and they deal with them in different ways and you know weather is you know tackle doesn't I don't doesn't even like mention the word climate change I don't think it just it's very subtle it's very atmospheric I mean they like I said the anxiety is there and she gets to mess it through but she does it in a very sort of roundabout way whereas a children's bible is basically like a fable that's like a very realistic fable about what's going to happen to us. And she deals with climate change head on, you know, just talks about, it, basically says this book is about climate change. The story is about, it's like a horror story about climate change. and It's so good. And it's actually really funny. Um, and then right before we started talking, I was reading, uh, I got my Paris Review newsletter and I was reading about a, uh, a poet named Ray uh, Armentrout, who is a poet who writes about climate change. So I'm just learning Hi. about her, but what I've read so far, I really like. So those are some racks for you guys.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you.
2: I don't know for us too. I'm gonna read it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I think that's a good point, though. That like I I feel like you know, yes, it's important to stay up on the news, but you know, um, I guess I don't know. I feel like thinking through these kind of deeper shifts that are needed is is really important and it's hard to do that with just like reading through the climate news cycle. <laughs> you know?
1: So,
0: mm-hmm. so Yeah. 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 And I don't know if this happens to you guys, but you know, you can sort of turn off um, your feelings when you're reading so much news about climate change and about everything, right? Yeah. I mean, you sort of, sometimes to read the paper, you just have to turn it off, otherwise you'll never get through it. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think there's sort of a value in sort of connecting with the emotional side of it to remember that, that you know, it's, remember how that this is really important shit and like, it's going to be really sad, you know? Yeah. It's going to yeah. be really hard. And so to kind of just keep you inspired, I mean, that's sort of... Um, you know, in terms of um, motivation, I don't know if that's really—I don't know if like a psychologist would say that's great motivation, like to be to be like make yourself sad and anxious. But it works for me. It works for me. You know? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I, I I totally identify with that. Like, it's not going to feel good, and once you recognize it, like, oh yeah, no, it's gonna hurt. Um, it's easier to go through with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. know, like I. That doesn't always make sense when I say it out loud, but in my head it makes
0: sense. So mm-hmm. people who are not already engaged in this stuff in a, in a big way, I think it can be a really good s- stepping stone for them. You know, yeah. I think mm-hmm. that you know, like my mom, who likes to read fiction, but you know, is is not you know getting any climate change newsletters, and is frankly is old enough that it really doesn't you know matter for her. Um, but like you know, this could mm-hmm. get her in, open her eyes a little bit, and um, you know, be a, a gateway. Yeah.
2: One of my favorite quotes about writing is from uh, E.L. Doctorow, um, and they said that um, history books tell you what happened and novels tell you what it felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really important to know like what this feels like. So, yeah, so, yeah in this episode, we're, we're taking things like a little bit differently. Um, we're going to talk about not so much what's been written but what's not been written about food Mm -hmm. and and climate change. Food feels like an obvious place to talk about climate change in a way that's both personal and personable, kind of like what you're saying about the novels and the fiction. And climate people also tend to be foodies. We love to eat. (laughs) Like we really do. Yeah. Um, yeah and plus all the foodies I know or at least like climate conscious or climate curious, like they're not new to the subject. I can see it every time that I walk into like a high-end kitchen shop, like throw a toddler or something, and there's everything in there is all about cutting your carbon footprint. There's all sorts of like beeswax wrap and silicone Mm -hmm. this or whatever, but still food seems to be missing as a theme for most climate writing and vice versa. So we know you're trying to fix that over at Epicurious. So we thought we'd take this episode to talk through some of those barriers and how we get climate in, in the right way. But first, I have questions. Okay, David, are you a cake?
0: Am I a cake?
2: Are you a cake? (laughs) You have to tell us, you are legally bound to tell us whether or not you are a cake.
0: Oh my god, I don't, I don't know what this question means, but I think it's. I'm gonna say yes. I'm <laughs> <my> cake. <laughs> I've seen all these trends
2: on Twitter where everything is a cake. Like someone cuts into a screwdriver and it's a cake.
0: I'm gonna tell you something. I eat so much cake; it's my favorite thing to eat. That I think if you cut into me, you would just find cake. <laughs> that is hilarious. But yes, I'm cake. Yeah. And so, I'm just trying to think, like, you know, if I was in Promised Town walking down the street and I would by a hot guy and he was like, hmm, cake, I'd be like, thank you. So, yeah, I'm a cake. So, you
2: must love it when we call you a hot cake every week in your newsletter. I
0: love it. I love it.
2: <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> oh, so funny. <laughs> That's what I was expecting,
3: but it was the answer I needed. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So one of the the first things we wanted to talk about, as far as like the barriers of getting climate into uh, food writing, is food um, writing at most major outlets is. Doused in whiteness and privilege, and it, I feel like it's deeply intertwined with endless travel, which in and of itself is intertwined with whiteness and privilege. And there seems to be heavy judgment for people who don't travel as much as somehow provincial. And I feel like a lot of this kind of came up in the recent media meltdown. All the mm-hmm. food shows are always about travel, and like there's no interrogation really of like the level of privilege it takes to travel like that. Um, mm-hmm. There's also no interrogation of how your carbon output as you're traveling like that. Thirdly, there's no implications of like what is climate doing in the places where you're traveling to. Right, right. So that's just a good like, point. Yeah, it drives me crazy. I think we got a question about this in the hot take inbox of like, I have a travel writer. How do I write about climate? I'm like, how do you not? mm
1: mm-hmm. huh. Uh huh.
2: Yeah. Like it's not. It's not just your output, your emissions as you're on the plane. It's also like, what's happening once you land? Like, if you're traveling to, I don't know, Italy, which is where it seems like everybody wants to go, there's definitely climate change impacts there. There's a refugee crisis Mm -hmm. that's being, you know, exacerbated by climate change. How are you not talking about that when you write about it?
1: Right, right.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the um I thought about like the the travel in terms of, you know, the carbon footprint of travel in general, but not that like, yeah, it should be pretty easy to sort of weave in the impacts that you're seeing. Even like if it's still focused very much on ingredients,
2: you could do that. You know? Yeah, right? Yeah. That's yeah, no, we're definitely gonna talk about
0: the ingredient part. Mm-hmm. But I think that the ingredient part is really important. And especially thinking about what I do in the cooking space. I mean, I think that the travel, the travel aspect has a trickle down effect in food media and lifestyle. I feel like you know, it kind of starts with travel and then you're like, in, in when you get to my space, the cooking space, you're bringing that home. And how are you bringing that home? A lot of times you are flying ingredients you know, from say Italy you know, to New York and I've, what I've been thinking about a lot lately is what, is, the, what is what are the ethics of encouraging people to do that and what are that, what are the, what's the climate impact of that and, and how do we get people to even think about that? Because I do think there's been, um, because of the travel stuff, because, because of the, because of, I think that food media has done a really good job of making people think that they are entitled to get whatever they want. Whenever they want it, mm-hmm. no matter how mm-hmm. far it came from, uh, no matter what season it is. And I think that I think it starts, I think a lot of it starts, I think you're pointing out something really important, Mary, that it sort of starts with this travel thing because that's where the inspiration is. And of course, people who have the money and the privilege can go to the source. And then, but what they're really doing is they're bringing it back to you. And so if you aren't in that space of, you know, you can't go to Italy or, okay. you know, Japan or whatever it is. The next best thing or maybe the third best thing you can do is kind of bring that home to you. There's still a climate impact there. You know, ingredients are, ingredients are privileged too. There's a ton of whiteness and privilege in the ingredient list in a recipe. And I think it starts with the gravel thing that you're pointing out.
2: Yeah. What's also wild is that, you know, tomatoes aren't native to Italy. They're native to South America. So like it all kind of comes back to like where, to colonialism.
0: Really. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we just are looking through everything through this white lens. We don't even think about a tomato until it's in Europe, until it's in white Europe. Mm-hmm. That's insane, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: yeah. Okay. I, I have more questions about food trends um there's there's one that i don't i don't know if you've noticed this but it has kept me up at night i have been so angry since i started seeing these videos of people seemingly normal people who smoke watermelons
1: what, what? have you
2: not it's, it's
1: supposed no, to be I, a I'm... vegan
2: steak replacement a barbecue oh. replacement and it looks like a ham god. they call it a watermelon ham david
0: okay so no I, so you're like seem to be vegan <laughs> youtube which i understand is like a really complicated space that i'm not in I'm i didn't go
2: happy. looking for this i didn't <laughs> go looking for this it was on twitter it was circulating on twitter and, oh my
3: uh,
0: god
2: <laughs> it is no,
0: if you've never seen it i don't condone it necessarily um, yeah, I think lots of people, people are putting smoke in lots of places where I don't want want it. You know, I won't say where. You know, people are gonna people who like smoke go go forth. You know, get your smoky flavors. But like me, I don't want it in my food. I don't want it in my chocolate. I don't want it. I, I kind of don't want it most places. I
2: don't, I don't want, want it, in it in my atmosphere. Yeah. For <laughs> I don't want watermelon ham in my atmosphere. Would you both mind checking the chat quickly?
3: Oh, sure. oh sure. God!
2: This is a process that takes days. Oh,
0: <laughs> wow! <laughs>
2: See, I, I love that Amy is reacting to this the same way I react to like mayonnaise. But
1: <laughs> we'll
3: get
2: to that. It's disgusting, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. I David, like would you I
2: mind have... describing what you're seeing?
0: Well, I'm yeah, I'm seeing a a. Bloody watermelon on a cutting board that looks that looks very much like a ham. It's been crosshatched and it's been charred and like it's wild and it's and it's bleeding. What looks like very much like steak juice.
3: This episode is sponsored by Ravensburger Puzzles. I don't think I've ever been so excited about an advertiser in my life because yes, I am a giant puzzle nerd. And Ravensburger makes the best puzzles, as anyone who loves puzzles will tell you. I live in a place where we actually get pretty frequent power outages. <laughs> and, and when we do, I like to freak out a puzzle. It's also a fun way to keep my kids off of their screens and do something sort of calm and meditative together. It's very satisfying when you snap that last piece into place. If you are looking for a calm and mindful exercise, I highly recommend checking out Ravensburger. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly, thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. You can start small with a a pretty straightforward puzzle and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40 percent for 0 4-0, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled
2: i feel like nobody in either food writing or climate writing has really figured out how to talk about well and that is uh climate and eating meat's um, yeah. It's an uncomfortable subject. And I know that that is something that you're really trying to bridge the gap on at Epicurious. is, in fact how we met. Um, you reached out to me and Amy to interview us for a story on this. Um, but I thought we could start by reading a story that you wrote in, I believe it was January, about this kind of topic.
0: Sure. The article is entitled Every Question About Sustainable Cooking Answered by a Climate Change Expert. And to give you just a little bit of context about this, Every year at curious for the past five years, uh, we've done a January challenge called Cook 90, where the challenge is that you cook 90 meals in January. So that's three meals a day. Almost every day you get three breaks. Um, and we did that because we, you know, we know that in January, people are feeling inspired to take on a challenge regarding their eating habits. We're not interested in telling people what to eat and, and we're not interested in diets or telling people they need to lose weight. But I am interested in getting more people to cook because I think cooking mm-hmm. is a healthy behavior. Overall, you know, mind, body, planet, mm-hmm. a wallet too, with healthy uh, for your wallet. So anyway, so we've done this for five years, and I've been the, the face of it. Um, and we did a book last year. Anyway, so this year we really focus it um, on sustainable cooking. So this was Mm. an introduction to uh, the Cook 90 meal plan. When the Epicurious team and I were putting together the plan for this year's Cook 90, we knew that we wanted to add an environmental layer to the challenge. In a year when we saw climate-related devastation in Brazil, California, Australia, and too many other places to count, deciding to encourage people to eat sustainably was a no-brainer. Then came the more difficult part, defining just what exactly sustainable eating is. It's well established that vegan diets have the smallest carbon footprint. It is equally established that when you tell people to eat vegan, they simply do not do it. Globally, meat consumption has only increased. And then I go on to define what we at Epicurious consider to be sustainable uh, eating, which is is very little animal protein. Uh, The only animal protein we included was fish. Um, It was low dairy. And then it was just very high on uh, legumes, you know, pulses, grains, and vegetables. Um, and smoked watermelon. And
1: smoked watermelon. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, that's super interesting because I <clears throat> I actually think, you know, we talked about the beef thing when um, in our conversation, David, and I've had other conversations with people since then. And, and I think like, you know, um, for a long time, excuse me, I was like, oh, well, I'll just buy better beef. You know, I'll just, um, only buy grass fed beef or only this or only that. And I think that, um, like, I think like you you were kind of like, yeah, that ends up being sort of like, you know, sort of a trap. (laughs) And, And I think it's true. I think that like, um, I I don't know. I've kind of come to the conclusion that like there is no sort of sustainable meat production. And actually, I'm I'm um, I don't know if you've caught in on this whole new flavor of like uh, climate delay that's going around. But a lot of these, a lot of the the like you know eco modernist guys are very are like now they've been pro GMO for a while, and now they're making the case for KFOs. As like somehow having a less of a an impact on land use and um, and biodiversity, oh it's very disturbing. Um, so anyway, I think I'm kind of like oh, okay. I feel like you know uh, maybe we just take a break from beef for a while. Let's just do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think that's what
0: I talked about. Like, I think that that's really yeah. Where it is, and, and you know the more, And since we talked, I've done more thinking about this and, and more research about this because we do have a piece coming out soon about this very question. You know, what about grass-fed beef? That's always a question people ask me when I tell them that Epicurious has not published anything about beef, or, and we don't develop new recipes with beef. We have cut out beef from our equation um, for mm. for over a year now. Um, the, the question is, well, what about grass-fed? So, and you know, the more that you understand about you know how a cow is problematic, you understand that it's really not about what they eat at all it's like it's it doesn't matter if they're on grass or if they're in a in a CAFO, which I mean and to be clear if, if yes, please like try not to get it from you know a place that has the cows locked up like that it was just so I'm not even necessarily like an, an animal rights person, but it's just so disgusting and so cruel and just just yeah. gross in yeah. every way. Um, yeah. but uh, yeah, there's just no getting around it, and um, I don't want to. I don't want to get off beef, but I will just say that you know when you start thinking about this, you really get to a place of well, then what about dairy? Because that's the next question too. And I'm really right. in a spot right now where I'm thinking, is there any sustainable way to do cheese? Like, is there any? I mean, oh, it's so, and that's a real that's a real problem <laughs> for me because you know, someone who does not eat a lot of meat. I'm getting a lot of protein <laughs> from my cheese, you know, and a lot of pleasure <laughs> from my cheese um, and my yogurt. You know, it's 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 painful, but I that is slowly where where I'm heading like I just can't you just the more you learn about it, the the more you you can't really pretend that that one is better than the other.
2: That Twitter meme
0: where like every, did, really, everything, was a cake. It was. was cake. so gross. It was, yeah, <laughs> it was some. It was some really gross shit there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did
2: you feel
0: like it was disrespectful to Kate? I, <laughs> it didn't cross my mind, but now that we're talking about it, yes, I'm. I'm living on behalf of Kate. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, you know, one thing that I think it was like is like, dumb about it's it like, why. I'm sort of get get really annoyed when like desserts in particular like have to look so crazy. Like, why is it all gotta like be? Yeah. I was looking through like there are a bunch of there are like eight there are eight pie books coming out this fall. Eight. Oh pie my books. god! Wow, that's a lot of pie. About, I know it's a lot of pie, and people are intimidated by pie anyway. And these books yeah. are all a lot of them are about how to make your pies look like all technicolored or they've got all these on fancy crust. I'm like, I don't. I don't need all that, and I don't think that's going to inspire anybody to bake. Because no. no. It's not going to look like that. It's going to look so bad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just kind of like I, I don't want I'm I don't want people I want people to just make a straight-up cake and
2: you know right
0: right as a cake American just, you know <laughs> just leave the cake alone. That's right. Just leave <laughs> us alone. I guess I should say because I'm talking about. I mean, people
2: like us <laughs> Preparing for the show, one of the barriers you pointed out, David, um, was that we've valorized chefs and chef culture and the machismo and shame and homophobia that comes with that. And I was really excited to talk more about that and how that influences the way we talk about meat.
3: Yeah. 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 There's a whole weird, like, masculinity thing involved there that's interesting.
0: There is, it's well known that there's a machismo problem uh, in restaurants. Uh, in in restaurant kitchens, that chefs have this um, that there's a culture in the chef world where you know you are a real masculine you know stereotypically masculine uh, person. You're tatted up. Uh, you're holding the, the the cleaver in your hand for your photos. I, I wrote a story once about like why. In every single chef photo, does it look like they're about to beat me up in an alley? Like why? Like why do I don't I don't want my food cooked by this person who looks so mean. But there's something right. I think. There's I think that somewhere along the line, chefs felt that you know they had to prove them prove their masculinity because you know at home cooking was women's work and they had to right. prove like what they were doing. Was different than that? It was, was, was more of a man's thing. And there's a whole yelling culture and, and, and a whole like uh-huh. just really culture of demeaning people in the kitchen. So I also think that the chefs have a machismo problem, bottom line. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And uh, we know that with machismo comes this sort of gluttonous thing where you're, like, you're pushing meat, you're eating meat, you're butchering your own meat, you're eating pork belly on top of your pancakes you're um uh, you know you're, you're eating beef heart you're eating the liver you're doing nose to tail animal you you're you know every chorus is you know yeah you know, you're eating the heart first and then you're eating steak and there's something there's some there's some real like masculinity machismo uh vibes in in meat and, um and that's not to say that yeah. there aren't women cooking meat and aren't women butchers but there it is okay so to put it even more succinctly, I just think that beef has a reputation. Steak has a reputation for being masculine, for being a macho food.
2: They generally hate vegans. I've heard this a yes. lot, that chefs hate vegans.
3: They will complain.
2: It's weird. And I will just say, like as a, the vegan on the saw, yeah. um, so I went vegan. Um, David and I went to the same college. We both went to Overland. Um, we didn't oh. know each other there. But what David I'm sure will agree with me on is that Oberlin is like a vegan paradise. It definitely was when I was there in like 2002 to 2006. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I I know that like, I don't expect y'all to agree with me on this, but I have always hated cheese always. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, as you know, hate mayonnaise. I generally don't like dairy. And so when I went to one of the food co-ops at Oberlin, someone gave me vegan pizza and I was like, this is, brilliant you mean i don't have to take the cheese off like this is awesome and so that was like my gateway drug into it vegan food has come so far since yes
1: that is very true (laughs) i mean i live
3: live in like a rural area and there's an entire section of vegan like like in every part of the grocery store there's there are like various vegan options now that just like we're not there five years ago.
2: Exactly and I feel like we need to stop framing veganism as like some sort of loss. And I was yeah. looking at Epicurious's site before this and I really do see like so many plant-based options that are just like there but mm-hmm. not they're not framed as like this is what you get when you give up meat necessarily it's just like <laughs> right. this is something you can cook. It's right. it like mm-hmm. you you're not presenting it in a way that like puts it up against meat which I think is just Great! It's like this is meal you can cook. That's a really interesting
3: um, point in the in the context of climate too, because I feel like the climate movement gets into that a lot too, of like always talking about it in terms of deprivation and not in terms, yeah, of
0: like, like good
3: stuff, you know, yeah. Um, so or just trying yeah. to
0: justify it at all, like trying to justify right. it. And I think something that is thankfully going away. Yeah. Um, and I think uh-huh. also ideas. I, I think this I, I think Atkins had a lot to do with this the Atkins diet because I think mm. I got mean, so protein obsessed and felt yeah. like you had to have an animal protein on the plate um, uh-huh. to, to make it you know worthy of a eating meal. for a meal, and yeah, right. that thankfully going out the window too, and that's helping you know kind of broaden what. We put out there in terms of a recipe because you know, there we have rules for the recipes we put out. You know, we have rules for how long the ingredient list should be, and, and, and feeling like it has to be a complete meal. But thankfully, like uh-huh. we are, we're trying to push, and also it's not just us, it's part of a broader wave of that. You know, what we're brought the idea of what is a complete meal and, and what you really need on the plate to make it complete.
3: Yeah, yeah, there, there had to have been some sort of like industry. Um marketing and influence to push some of that stuff too, right? Like, I know I was, you know, I'm obsessed with this, like the influence of... I was about to say, that's a very Amy question. And marketing. (laughs) But like, I know, for example, one of the guys that I looked into um, who had helped the oil industry brand itself also introduced the idea of uh, meat as a um, necessary breakfast food. So like, he came up with this whole idea in the, I think it was like in the forties of like the, like the the new like American breakfast was bacon and eggs. And like mm-hmm. before that everybody was eating like toast um, or cereal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, there are these ways that, that like the, I don't know. I just, I feel like there are all, there's almost always some, you know, capitalist reason that something has become a trend it's it's almost never that like people just happen to discover it and like it you know
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. right. So, right i mean yeah. the, the, the the marketing of milk is something that makes you strong you know mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that's directly related to like this to, to basically the cow if, we, if we're consuming the cow that we're gaining strength you know that idea right. is really ingrained that it's that good for you, it's going to make you... And this is where the masculinity thing comes in. That it's going to make you totally. more of a man. You know, it's, yeah. gonna, it's, it's, it's more of a manly food. It's going to make you bigger or stronger. I mean, it's just it's all ridiculous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that
3: that was yeah. intentional too in the same way that cars were, were marketed as masculine. The guy, that, the guy that came up with the breakfast thing also came up with the idea of cars as an extension of masculinity. And he was um, Freud's nephew. So he was very into like all kinds of phallic imagery (laughs) Uh (laughs) and and ways to, you know, know, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah.
0: Where I think masculinity really comes into play here is that there's a really there's a fear among men in the world of appearing weak. And I think chefs and, you know, marketing industry, advertising industry, it's a whole, you know, trifecta or more of influences here. But the idea is out there that if you if you are a vegan, if you don't eat something, that it, that it, that is a weakness, and that if you mm-hmm. you know, and that if you do eat it, it's a strength. Like we just said, like a literal strength, like it's going to make you stronger. But it's also just this kind of strength of character. Um, yeah. And and that that's so deeply ingrained in, in modern. Men still have that idea. Modern chefs still have the idea. And, and there are plenty of... And what I... Basically, actually, I, don't wanna, I actually don't want to gender this. I actually... What I'm talking about are like this kind of bro mentality. And there are plenty of right. women who have this bro mentality too. There are plenty of women yes. you know, who are gross. A lot of them work at Connie <laughs> um, <laughs> um
1: Girl boss. <laughs> yes, totally.
0: <laughs> yeah. when, I, yeah. when I when I say bro mentality, I'm really I'm really using that in a, a pejorative way, and thinking of somebody who is just sort mm-hmm. of like got these sort of machismo ideas about it's the a world domination and- mentality. Yeah, yeah, domination thing, and is gonna you know, be like if you you what you're not eating, you're concerned about a little cow that's weak, like you know, mm-hmm. get out of my restaurant type of thing. Like David Chang used to do at his restaurant at his first mm-hmm. restaurant. People they remember that because now. It's trendy for us to be on vegetables. But that is, that is very real, that that is there, I think. And I, when, we, when you tell someone that you don't eat beef, I'm sure, Mary, this happens to you. I'm, I'm, well, actually, I'm really curious to know like, what people say to you. I, I'm,
2: yeah, I, I think a lot of people are thinking that I'm like bougie or that I'm um, demanding or high maintenance. Um, they also seem to assume I'm judging them. And the thing is, like, I don't care what you eat. Like, I really don't. You can, as long as it doesn't have eyes and it's not mayonnaise, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. like, they just, like, they're judging me so hard. And right. they're judging me for judging them, but I'm not judging them. Like, you can right. eat whatever you want. Um, I just will eat not eat what I want. And I think there's also, like, some sort of, uh, like, oh my God, you went to that white girl school and now you came back a white girl. Um, and then like, when I go back home, sometimes I have to explain it to people that this idea that you can eat meat every single day at every single meal is extremely recent. So like, yeah. while I was talking to like the generation before my mother, my grandfather's generation, I would explain like a meal that I would eat. And I was like, it would be beans, grains, and cornbread. And they'd be like, oh yeah, that's what we used to eat.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: there's there's a tradition in the african-american community to um Season your vegetables with meat, and that's a holdover from when you didn't people didn't have meat very much. Right. So to spread it out among a lot of people so that they could get the protein that you needed, you would put it in your vegetables and let it flavor it. Um, and then you could like spread it out. But we've kept that tradition even as, you know, people have more access to meat. And so it's just sort of like you you hold on to it, and also black people have only been able to afford um, these types of foods for a very short period of time. So it's kind mm. of like feast or famine type of thing. Right. Um, right. So yeah, yeah. I get I get some of that. And probably some people think I'm a punk too. Which <laughs> 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 is another this, word with a nasty history. So
0: <laughs> yeah, I just. I've been thinking about this recently because I just read this book called The Jemima Code, which is all about uh, black cookbooks and the history of, of, you know, the black cookbook publishing. Uh, the, black, the cookbook industry as, as a... Uh, can I can I talk? Yeah. I've just been thinking about this recently because I've read the book The Jemima Code, which is all about black cookbooks. And there is a serious erasure of people in the 70s, you know, Black people writing cookbooks that are writing about the health trends that we are only getting around to now that they were yeah, first. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, there's a deep history of black veganism. There's a deep history of black vegetarianism that we just yeah, completely yeah. erase. And so it's really yeah. interesting for me to you, Mary, say that like you know people think oh you went to this you know white and obviously we went to the white school together we, and that's true. Yeah. Um, this bougie white school and came back. That's so. That, 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 that There's some serious or racial or just ignorance there in that assumption. Um,
2: That's so interesting. I, yeah, that it's like more I... like forgetfulness. I think. I think it's actually like forgetfulness of painful memories of and having to do without. Yeah. In the, in the yeah, case but- of like. Mm-hmm.
3: But also, like, I, I lived in Oakland for a long time, and like the Black Muslim bakery was like where you went to get, Mus- like, to get vegan food in the Bay Area forever. You yeah, know?
2: Um, yeah. And this is making well, it, me really hungry.
0: The, the bougie mm-hmm. part is interesting to me because, uh, and the judgment part, because as yeah. you know, the site director of a site that will someday soon announce, can I come, come out of the closet about not? you know, fucking with beef anymore. I do worry about um, both of those things. I do worry that, that, you know, people will consider it will be judged. And I I think, and I kind of grapple with the question, like, am I judging them? Like, am I turning the site into something that is judging people for eating beef? I kind of am judging people. I kind of think that maybe I I want um, to kind of veer towards, like, coming out uh, about our position on beef is, Is supposed to make people uncomfortable. It is supposed to send a message to other food media.
3: And I I think it's very cool that you guys are doing that. And it's a big, it's like a, that is a big ballsy move in the food writing. (laughs)
2: Yeah, but I, I don't think it's necessarily judgmental. I think it's just sort of like, this is a decision that we've made and go on from there. Like, it's not like you're saying, if you eat beef, you're not welcome on our site because I guarantee you, there's nobody who eats beef and only beef. (laughs) <laughs> I doubt yeah, there's and, one. And we're
0: not thinking yeah. down the beef. These, you know, we're just not putting up any new ones. I just feel like we have enough. Right. Right? how many burgers right. do we need on site? So sometimes I do feel like if you if if you're feeling a little bit judged, sometimes I can, uh, it, you know, be the catalyst for some positive change. <laughs> yeah, like, oh. that's true. Yeah. Um yeah. But the, the bougie part is another really interesting part of this because you know a lot of times when people are eating beef. It's not necessarily because they're like huge beef pets and they just love the taste of beef. I mean, I think people love burgers, even I love burgers. Um, but um, it's cheap.
3: Yeah. Problematically. Well, it, it is cheap. It's been and like it's artificially cheap. made cheap. It's the same as yes. like a lot of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the same yeah. as fossil food. But also, yeah.
1: beans are cheap.
0: Bean, mm-hmm. Beans are cheap, yes. But like, but beans, you know, if you. Yeah, and beans are easy, especially if you get them canned. And there's lots of yeah. stuff that's easy. You know, vegetables. Vegetables take more work than taking a package of ground beef and kind of forming into a patty and putting it in a pan. You know, yeah. people who have kids, people who are on budgets like there's there's so many conveniences that that you just pointed out, and you know, that have been, um, you know, are falsely have been kind of. Artificially made convenient. They're 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 yeah. truly convenient, but by but because we've subsidized it. Um, right. And yeah. so when you say when I say to people, okay, cut out beef. It, it is complicated because I'm also trying to tell people another big thing we're doing on the site right now is talking about affordable cooking because the economy is just as scary as climate change is. Like right now, I mean, like the, the economy yeah. is it's going to get so much worse. And and I and I'm, am I really going to tell people like no, you can't. I don't. I don't think you should be eating. We're not going to run recipes, cheap recipes that use ground beef. You know, we're going to run cheap recipes that use lentils instead. I am, mm-hmm. but it is a little complicated because I because I do think there is there is a bougie It is a privilege to um, eat foods that take more time to cook. That's just what it is. I mean, the, you know, having time to cook is a privilege. Having time to you know. Um, to, to peel all your vegetables and chop them and get them in a pot and take an hour to cook. That's a privilege. And yeah. so that, these are, it's just, more, it's just so complicated as you guys know, as you guys well know these things. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. But see, I, I, I differ because I don't think, and these were a lot of the questions I got when I decided to go vegan and I told my friends what I was going to do. And I did it when I was unemployed. Um, so like money was not a thing that I had, but I had, I did have a lot of time. Um, mm-hmm. But, and I'm only cooking for myself. So first of all, yeah, meat might be quick to cook. I don't remember meat being that quick to cook, actually. Like when I go back home and like my brother is cooking meat and I'm cooking vegetables, I'm always done first. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like if I don't, if I undercook my vegetables, nobody goes to the hospital. Um, (laughs) So that's another thing. Um and also like I have saved so much money by going vegan. Um and that's also because I'm not eating like things like Gardein. I'm not trying to eat like impossible burger and things that taste like meat because I don't <laughs> right. miss meat. Um right. so it depends on what you are eating. Like I think when people think of veganism, they really just get tunnel vision on the things you can't have and how to replace that. Um, so that your plate looks like theirs. Whereas, like, I don't want that. Give me all the side dishes. And Mm -hmm. that's like a great meal to me.
0: It could definitely go both ways. um, It just depends on where you're starting from um, and uh, how you perceive it, you know.
2: Yeah, I think it's a framing problem um, because it's always all about loss, and there's so much that you gain by going vegan. And I'm never going to be the person who tells everyone. Like Everyone's not going to have the same experience to me. I do not judge people for not being vegan. Um, And I don't necessarily think that everybody can't. Some people have health concerns that mean that they can't go vegan. Like They actually need the animal protein. And far be it for me to judge anybody for that. I went vegan solely so I could eat more french fries. Really, that's what it was about. It was like, I don't care about the burger. I don't want cheese. I want fries. And so that okay, was my, are my the,
0: thing. Are the fries just a delivery you know, mechanism for the ketchup? Or are you really No.
2: Fries? Oh, I'm really into the fries. I can eat fries with mm. no sauce at all. Um, Same. So Same. yeah, you should do that instead of putting mayonnaise on them, Amy. Nope, never, um, never. Disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> the- disgusting. Um, but yeah, like, I, I just want to say that like, veganism doesn't have to be about loss. So I've got more food trend questions while we're talking about this expansion of vegan types of food. What's the weirdest milk that y'all have seen out there? Ugh.
3: I just mm-hmm. have to say yeah. that the phrase nut milk is disgusting and I don't understand <laughs> what people were thinking when they like came up with that. And the like what this is what we're calling this? Come on. Just Yeah, you know it's else. also
2: in that name? <laughs> pea milk. Yeah, why? Yeah, they're trying to call it. I don't know. I don't know. Why who looked at some peas and said, you know what? I bet I can milk it. <laughs> <laughs> also,
3: and who looked at the like the the resulting substance and said, you know what's gonna make people buy this? Let's call it pea milk. <laughs> 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 Why? Why?
0: And that was probably Gross. my answer, by the way, for the for the worst milk out there.
3: It's pea milk? milk. Yes. <laughs> have you tried
1: it?
0: Uh I probably have tried it. I don't um I think I have I think it was Just you know, to me, it's it's uh, with these these quote milks, they're they're just there's just so much oil in them. There's like there's just so much other stuff that's in them that to me that's the really gross part. Like um, Mm -hmm. what they have to put in there to kind of create a texture and to keep things you know from separating and stuff. So uh, to me, it tasted just a lot like every other milk, Uh, every other dairy milk.
2: Yeah, fair enough. I think that all non-dairy milk should be called milk. I think that's just like, we should make that a thing. Call just call it just milk. Milk, yeah. milk like it, with an N. Oh, and so, milk, so instead of that's saying a good idea. Milk, right? Uh, and so it, it, that, I, I proposed that on Twitter and somebody was like, we should call it pilk for plant-based milk. Call it what it is and not what it is. And I'm like, that doesn't sound sexy. No,
0: sounds no. disgusting milk oh <laughs> um, i can see I can see a real like hipster carton of milk right now I think that that is I think that's a really good idea and I, I think it would
3: be good yes yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so another uh thing we wanted to talk
2: about is as food writing and media kind of presents itself as as escapism, um, and how that's just simply not possible. On a show we did recently with Kate Aronoff, we talked about The Great British Baking Show, um, and how like, oh, that's just such great escapism. And I told her the story about how I put it on to try to escape my thoughts about climate change in the uh, aftermath of the 2018 IPCC report, and then you know, they're baking in the tent. It's like the great bake-off of the Great British Baking Show, and it was too hot in the tent for them to bake.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's not supposed
2: to be that hot, so they had to, like, get out the tent. I was like, God, I can't get away from climate change anywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think we need to get away from that sort of expectation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, right, it's the... the And that's I think that's a big problem with, with food writing, um, and probably all lifestyle writing is that, uh, it, it just was, a lot of it was just never supposed to be rooted in reality, right? It was all okay. supposed to like, just kind of be aspirational. Um, and I think that, that has really fed a lot of people's ideas about what their lives should be like. I think a lot of people took this stuff literally when perhaps, you know, as editors, we were like, well, we're not really expecting people to, to live this way. They're supposed to give them kind of like something pretty to look at on the page. You know, we're not, we don't really expect people to travel to this place or to go on these expensive cruises or like, you know, when Gourmet was around, you know, I, I loved that magazine, but they were writing about, you know, boxes of, ch- boxes of chocolate that were $200, you know? How many of the wow. ideas were really like, well, like, you know, this is just, we're kind of writing about this as a uh, as a sort of like heads up, this exists. We don't really expect you to, we don't really expect many of our readers to buy it. And yet, I think that, you know, it was presented seriously and and we have really enabled a culture of, again, um, entitlement that we just feel like Mm -hmm. we're entitled to all these experiences and all these, um, you know, products. And I Mm -hmm. think, and I, like you, Mary, I see climate everywhere in it. I see see it everywhere. Yeah. Like when I think about like what's in my fridge or like where it, you know the, the chili oil obsession I have. Like if I'm getting a chili like how many bottles, different brands of chili oil do I need? And how many you know <laughs> they're coming from, you know they're coming from Japan and they're coming from China and they're coming from you know mm-hmm. like, Thailand. You know, they're coming from, and like why why? Like I know how, I have a recipe in my cookbook for how to make chili oil. <laughs> so yeah. I can just see yeah. <laughs> but I feel like I'm I'm gonna be a cook in twenty twenty. And this is a real thing that I feel and this is so weird. If I'm gonna be a cook in twenty twenty, I need to have a big selection of, of chilli oils because that's the way people are cooking now. That's a big like, trendy thing and like recipes call for it and I and and That's it's the so interesting. interesting.
3: So, I wonder I, too if like the quarantine stuff has exacerbated all of that because people are like uh, at home and they're trying all these different recipes and they're like mostly just ordering things online anyway and it all kind of blends together and like,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, the justification of why well, I'm not doing any traveling, why well, I'm not going out to restaurants and exactly. exactly. that money here so I'm going to exactly. spend it online here instead, that is very exactly. real. Um, but of course... Biggest problem, I and mean, this is the thing that really drives me crazy. The biggest problem um, is is all the delivery. To me, yeah. that is that is the that is the biggest. That is one of the biggest to me climate issues when it comes to cooking. Which is just the fact that home cooking is dying. Like this, like you statistically, there's less and less people do it, and mm. what is replacing it is this. Food that comes to you in a car, you know, packaged in all this wasteful material. So You're much getting, packaging. Like, you
1: know, yeah. you
0: know has a drawer full of you know plastic utensils, you know, wrapped in that plastic bag with the disposable napkin, and it just makes me so sick. And I think that that is really the the biggest problem, and that's why I think that that's why we started. That's one of the reasons why we started Cook Ninety, but to encourage people, like, look, don't go on a diet. Just just teach yourself how to cook, and just go go on a takeout diet, because I think takeout is just what do
3: you what do you think about like the box
0: subscription i was just things? about to ask
3: that yeah i'm curious about well okay so two things one i live in a place that has no food delivery at all so um yeah so like you know it's like you can do it you can totally do it <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but yeah. then also i do like when all of the um you know, Blue Apron, and and like now there's I don't know ten different ones um, started coming about. That was the main thing I worried about was just that, you know how many little tiny plastic packages there are in in each of those boxes, and like where are these ingredients coming from, and all of that kind of stuff. But I don't know if, yeah. if you have thoughts on that, David.
0: I have many thoughts on it. I'm going to try not to uh-huh. you know, go on for <laughs> two hours here. So in okay. general, in general, I'm, I'm pretty mad about these boxes. Mm. The biggest reason I don't like them is that I think they solve a false problem. I don't think there's a, I, I think they really have done an excellent job at making home cooking feel like an inconvenience. Feel like that's something so that's a waste of time and a waste of money, even though these boxes are obviously way more expensive than if you spot the ingredients. Um,
3: yes, way more. You, yeah.
0: You know, I saw, I'll I mean, I tell a little story. You know, I, I was uh, a couple years ago, you know, when Blue Apron was, I think, at its biggest, and they had people on the street. Uh, at least in New York, they did where that would stop you and and say, like, yes. "Hey, do you like cooking?" And they would like handing out like a free like a free trial or something like that. And the, but but their question was, "Do you like to cook?" And I said, and "They stopped me." And I said, "Yes." And I said, "Okay, but do you?" They said, "Do you like to shop?" So do you like to grocery shop? And I was like, "Yes." And she was all <laughs> flustered. "What do you mean? Why do you?" And she's like, she's like, well, where do you find the time? You know, where do you find the time to do all that cooking? and where do you find the time to do all that shopping? And I thought that was such a weird question because where do I find the time to shop? Like, I don't really have a choice. If I don't shop for my food, I don't eat. Like, this is like a, this is like okay. a really good. This is like a survival. This is like a survival's uh, thing, right? Like, I it just seemed like a real necessary thing, and I think they've turned it into something that's optional, like sourcing yeah. your food hunting and gathering, right? This is, this is like kind of like the modern version of hunting and gathering, or like going to the grocery store and getting your food. It's mm-hmm. not... Um, it's, it's not something that's inconvenient. It's just a necessary part of life. And, we, and they've turned into something that just is, like I said, completely optional. Now, that said, I do like grocery delivery sometimes. Mm, not really. But, but I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not as mad at grocery delivery, but I'm... Um, as I am at the food, so so that's my first problem with it. I think I think they've, they've, I think the marketing has really done a huge disservice to yeah. uh, society. You know what? Um, you know what's
3: interesting about that too is that I I feel like so um, I I will say as do, you don't have kids, right, David? I, I don't. Don't okay. So as the as like the parent in this group, um, grocery shopping with kids <laughs> is a giant pain in the ass. But mm-hmm. I feel like that is also something that has like, um, been turned into part of this marketing thing. And like, I, I, um, I very much enjoy the occasional grocery shopping trip without my kids, but I make a point of taking them with me because I feel like that is kind of an important part of, of like teaching your kids where food comes (laughs) from too, you know, like, yes. Um, because, and and like and i'm and i don't mean like food comes from the grocery store like they'll ask you know like what is this like my kid keeps wanting me to buy oranges right now and i'm like well oranges aren't in season so we're not going to buy them you know? right right <laughs> and, like that is a conversation that like wouldn't make sense to him if we weren't in the grocery store so like
2: yeah but this also brings up another thing is that like a lot of these ingredients that we just take for granted are kind of on the endangered species list so to speak right like coffee and wine and olive oil like i can chocolate Chocolate, yeah yeah. and i feel like COVID is a precursor to all of that because we've kind of gotten this Mm -hmm. jump shot of plenty is an illusion and climate change is going to make that just a million times worse and yeah that that also just it just makes it so much weirder to me that climate change is not A prominent topic in a lot of food writing. Absolutely.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that cooking sites, their MO is, I don't even think they're thinking of it as escapism, but it's just to enable. It's enabling. And I kind of get the impulse because, you know, we, we think if we have a mission, with the, the, our mission at Epi is to get people to cook more. And so we try to be, trying to be a positive space, a place for education, a place for inspiration. And so we're just trying to enable all this stuff. And there's not a culture of lifestyle journalism really saying no a lot of times. Unless you're telling people to, put, to go on a diet. You know? I mean, I feel like you know, women's media in particular, you know, has... I don't have to tell you guys, like, has been obsessed with you know dieting for a long time. But yeah. yeah that's really the only instance that comes to mind at this moment of like lifestyle journalism really taking a stand saying no, 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 no. And I think we really mm-hmm. need to do that. I think the concern is that we don't want to be pushy. We don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to rock the boat. But like mm-hmm. what choice do we have at this point? Like, but there's also just...
3: this like false framing there of like the idea that there can be no joy in limits. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> there's it's like limitlessness or nothing, you know, like there's a, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, I mean, this is a whole thing that's coming around with the the discussion around, um, the economy and degrowth and all that stuff too, that like this, this idea of, um, learning to think about and talk about limits as like not always negative (laughs) things, you Mm -hmm. know, that like there are choices we can make that Will overall make life better,
0: it, to Amy. Like i uh, the word that I've grappled with a lot in the past two years is the word austerity, because yes. I think that word has been sort of co-opted by you know Angela Merkel, um, and it's not—it's right. such a loaded, such, such a loaded word now. But I do think there is a space, or maybe I'd, I'd love to find a new word that kind of got, gets at the, some of the ideas of austerity. And um, sort of depoliticizes it and makes it a little less weighted because uh-huh. I think I truly because this because this is where I'm in my own life. I think that austerity needs to happen uh, in people's cooking and eating. I just think that it, I just think that we just have to like think about you know really kind of pull back on our choices, like like you're saying, um, right. and make make better ones. And and it's gonna you know like you. Like, yeah, You're making a good point. Like it, it, some people are only going to see it as pain, but you know, can we, can we find a word or can we find a you know a, a framing where we're talking about austerity but really talking about it as a positive thing because it will be a positive thing if we right. you know, if it leads to, um, you know, us not catching on fire in the next 50 years, you know, <laughs> right. so
1: right. Right. What about
0: I mean, simplicity?
3: I, that's the word that just came to my mind too. Simplicity. Yeah, it's like it's a very appealing word right now. I think. Um, yeah. Simplicity. Yeah, yeah I think
1: that's, Yeah, I think there's something there. I think
2: that. Right, because like the idea yeah. is that you're cutting out all of these chains, and like food has just gotten so complicated. It's got to go yeah. through like all of these mm-hmm. food that doesn't go through checkpoints. Um, That doesn't um, have to like wait days and days before it gets to you. It's just like more direct Mm -hmm. um, and therefore something that you can savor more. Yeah. Yeah. And like
3: some, I don't know, seems like the opposite of excessive or over the top or complicated or whatever, you know?
1: Yeah.
2: wanted to talk about um is how food intersects with identity and how much more important that is in the age of of climate change um because in this world where people are are losing the places that made them food is one of the things that can still tell you who you are it's like air and water and land food is one of those things that we need to live Mm -hmm. Um, And it holds our traditions even when we lose connections to the countries that we call home. It's why food is so important to immigrant and refugee stories. Why often some of the first things that immigrants and refugees do once they land somewhere is open a restaurant. Um, It's why Africans brought seeds with them to the Americas. That's how we got okra. Um, Mm -hmm. food allows us at least for a moment to go back to the place from which we've been exiled and climate change is exiling more and more people. Like, it's not like you can just go back to a lot of these places. Um, And I feel like it's time to start seeing more food essays where people talk about how the food um, influences their identity that also weaves in climate change. I feel like that's going to start happening. And I feel like I've seen a lot of stories where I was just like, surprised it didn't come up and surprised that the editor didn't say, hey, how about you talk about the climate impact there? And Mm -hmm. I've got two such examples here um, that I wanted to read from. One is from um, Food 52 and the other is from Subverse. I'll I'll read the first one. Um, So this is called The Chicken Curry That Put My Broken Family Back Together Again. It was in Food 52. My strongest childhood memories are not from my own childhood. They belong to my father. I think of them often, children picking mangoes straight off the tree, chickens running free around the house, men measuring their wealth by the cows they own, and a village taking care of as many, many children. But I think of them most when I braised chicken and curry. The chicken curry itself is a recipe passed down by my father. Each time he'd prepare it, we'd sit down as a family. The stories would flow. It became how we understood where he came from, not just through his stories, but in the ritual of eating in the same traditions.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And sorry, I forgot to mention her father was from Malawi.
3: Interesting. Yeah.
2: Man, now I want to uh, eat chicken curry. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, I've also got this other story that I'm gonna make Amy read. It's called Return to Oaxaca. It was yeah. in summer. It was in what? What was it in? Subverse? Sub- oh, Subverse.
3: Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay, so return to Oaxaca. That's the thing about Oaxaca. You can leave it, but it never leaves you. Known as the, quote, land of seven moles, Oaxaca is also the land of the Zapotec, Mixtec, Mazatec, Mixe, and other proud indigenous peoples. Because the Spanish ruled some rugged pockets of the state in name only, its culture remains closely tied to ancient flavors, techniques, and ingredients. Native corn, chiles, agave, and cacao from the bedrock of Oaxaca's cuisine, as well as its agricultural economy, oh, form form the bedrock of Oaxaca's cuisine, as well as its agricultural economy and strong sense of community. Yeah. How could you not talk, talk about what's happening to cacao in a story about moles?
2: You cannot. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and also <laughs> if this story is about like people returning to Oaxaca after they have, you know, sort of like it, this reverse migration that's taking right. place from right. California back to Mexico. Right. And like, but you got to talk about what's happening in terms of climate in Oaxaca because it's not untouched. Right. right. Like I just, it feels like, you know, when I'm watching a regular TV show like Insecure, for example, and they've been in LA this whole year and nobody's mentioned the wildfires, like, wait a minute, something's missing here. Yeah. Um,
0: I feel like we're on a path. I think what you're saying, Mary, is that we're on a path to like reading articles about, you know, foods that just can, are no longer available, you know, and, right. you know, and, you know, these traditional foods that, you know, sustain people and also just meant something to people and that they're going to be lost uh-huh. forever thing is we 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 only read those stories and and as editors I think we are we're prone to only running those stories after it's happened you know yeah and yeah to give the pre to give the heads up is just somehow seen not as quite as sexy because like the answer you know the, the question is always why now right why now why now why run why run the story now of course the answer is why now because if we don't run it now you know the stuff will really go away but we tend to yeah. wait until it's Well, it's gone away, it's lost, or it's almost lost. You know, we only read about endangered species of birds or animals when they're almost distinct, right? Like We don't read about when there's like, you know, 5,000 left because people just are, we've just trained ourselves not to care or to believe that something will come in and fix it and turn it around, that we don't have to worry about it. Um,
2: Yeah. 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 I I mean, I think- Yeah, I I think about it in terms of like whenever I eat something that or cook something that reminds me of New Orleans, like the city that's slipping into the ocean. I can't do that without thinking of Katrina. I can't do that without thinking about how I wanted to move there. Um, But by the time I graduated college, it was not a place I could move. And even now, I can't in good conscience move to New Orleans Um, and how like but eating it can take me back there, but also like it brings all these conflicted sort of memories. And I imagine people are having that sort of reaction to foods from the Middle East or even foods from Bangladesh or places that are going underwater or Australia, right? Like mm-hmm. so all of those things influence your your memories. And Even if you have lost access to that place through war, through famine, or through climate, I'm sure that like the food traditions, for example, of the people coming to the United States from um, South America, their food traditions are probably very precious to them because it's the last thing you have left. It's the last way that you can like recreate home. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: You know, we're gonna see. I think there's gonna be a test of this in the coming year. I think what you're gonna see. My prediction. For cooking media, is that uh-huh. a lot of African cuisines are going to be trendy? Because you, you know, yeah. looking at the books that are coming out, looking at the food writers that are coming up, you know, even me, you know, I just assigned, you know, I'm working with this writer who I love in the UK, uh, named Zoe Ojono, and she's um, her, she focuses on uh, the cuisines of Ghana, and so you're going to see a lot of this, a lot of writing about African cooking in American cooking publications where are they going to talk about any of the issues that you just mentioned? Are you going to talk about extreme? Yeah. Are you, going to talk about famine? are you going to talk about, you know... Um,
1: War, issues? that's... Yeah. Right,
0: War. yeah. And probably not. You're probably not going to see it. And I think that's a really interesting point. And actually, it's really... I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's really interesting for me because I'm thinking like, oh, how do I do that? And, and part of when it, when I think about this stuff... For my own site, my excuse is usually, "Well, we don't do that. Epi doesn't do political stuff. We don't. We don't. We don't. We've never run a story about famine or war or any or or climate change. You know, before a couple of years ago. But mm-hmm. again, at a certain point, like you just have to, you know, you just are not writing about reality anymore. You're writing about a fake world. You're you're writing about a fake place where all this cooking is happening. It's kind of this, like this imaginary world. Right. Um,
2: exactly. And, yeah. 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 You know who I would love to see, write more about climate, and I think he absolutely has the chops to do it, is Michael Twitty. Um, he wrote um, I think his book is called Kosher Soul.
0: Um, uh, his book is called The Cooking Gene. But the I think Cooking
2: Gene! That's his Twitter yeah. handle. It's Kosher Soul.
0: Yeah,
2: um, yeah. He is... A fantastic, just like amazing writer. Um, Highly recommend looking into some of his work Um, Mm -hmm. because I've seen him write things that kind of go up to the line of climate. Like he did this thing where he picked cotton for a whole day um, and then he wrote this gorgeous essay about it. And at the end, he had to stop early because Hurricane Sandy came to town. And so like, boom, there's a climate change cameo right there. Um, He's also done these things where he like tours Africa and tours the cuisines. And so there's like that reunion between an African American and Africa, but also like, what are the climate impacts you're seeing on the ground and how is that impacting whether or not people can access food at all? Like there's definitely all of these droughts going on over there. Um, There's wars breaking out because uh, Lake Chad is drying up. So there's just, such a huge story to tell. And like, I don't know, maybe somebody should get me and Michael Twitty in a room and we should do a book together. I don't know, maybe.
1: Um,
2: yeah, I, I do hope to see more writing like this. I think that if we can connect food to immigration, if we can connect food to refugees, it, it we have to connect it to climate because if you just scratch the surface of why people are leaving where they're from, you're probably going to wind up at climate, even if you have to go through a layer of violence first.
0: Yeah. But where do you think you're going to see those stories? So, I mean, I could see those stories happening in the New York Times. I could see it happening in like a site called the New Food Economy. I don't know if you guys know that site. Oh, yeah. I love
3: that site. Yeah.
0: The Civil Eats or something like that. But- Again, yeah, I just think it, it. I think it has to happen in on Food Fifty Two, on yeah. on Epicurious, yeah. on you know the kitchen, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is, you know, and that's just going to take a huge shift. And I'm going to tell you something: the readers, at least my readers, Epicurious, they are going to be mad. they they they're they're because yeah. they're, they're,
3: they're like not- I come here to get away from reality.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes, so many times, you know, whenever we write something like this, we put it out in a newsletter or especially on Instagram, where people like to comment. You know, um, the comment is always "stick to food," and that is, and that's really that really gets at the crux of this, right? Like the idea that sticking to food means never thinking about any other issue except for like how do you cook the thing, you know. Or yeah.
2: it That's so but, interesting. But at the same time, we get that same thing environmentalism, where it's like stick to climate and not talk about race, not talk about right. racism, like not talk about sexism. And the reality is that if you're not talking about all of these connections, you're not talking about it. And that's yeah. what it comes down to. And so the climate movement has had to have that moment where I think we generally, not everyone, but generally, it's agreed upon and this happened very quickly this happened within just the past two years where it's the dominant train of thought it seems to me and amy can correct me if i'm wrong is that if you're not talking about everything then you're not talking about anything Mm -hmm. Um, and so i there definitely are some folks who still are in that stick to climate mode but they are either uh marginalize, or I've blocked the shit out of them, so I don't hear them anymore i i feel, I, I, I feel no. like the more progressive voices have prevailed or it, or I think so too and I, I think that we can
3: credit the youth movement with that, actually, like yeah. I think that they are just like, yeah no, we're not doing that anymore, and like, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah it's, it's but, yeah, it's
3: cool, yeah. But
2: I mean, also I on Food 52, I saw on Food 52 I saw a lot of like uh coverage of like how important refugees are to food culture after um mm. the travel ban. So mm. like I think there's a precedent.
0: Yeah, there is. And it, but it's just you you have you are gonna sacrifice some of your audience and it's a sacrifice that I know that we at Epi are totally willing to make and willing to, you know, and actually even even sometimes I'm um, happy to see. You know, when I say that, I mean, when we post something, especially in the past two months, when we've posted, uh, you know, we wrote this great, we ran this great essay by this woman named Tara O'Brady. I reached out to Tara in February and asked her if she would write a primer on making home dosa for us because I saw everyone doing sourdough bread and I thought, well, if people are fermenting at home, if they're getting comfortable fermenting at home, they're going to want to do dosa next. I was trying to get ahead of the trend. So you know, I reached out to this writer we work with, and she wrote it, and she was happy to do it. And then you know, we kept on pushing it because we didn't want people to think that, you know, considering everything that's going on at Bon Appetit, Condé kind of Nast, Epicurious, um, we didn't want it to seem like all of a sudden we rushed to get a writer of color to write something you know, about non-American food. You know, we had assigned this, you know, in February. So
1: yeah.
0: mm-hmm. ultimately, so we, as we grappled with how to deal with it, Tara, you know, wrote this really great essay about what it means to be a person of color and asked to write about the cuisine of her heritage and how it's such a catch-22 because she wants to write about that food, but she also doesn't want to be pigeonholed. And it, it's a very nuanced piece. Anyway, we mm-hmm. put, when we put something like that up on our Instagram feed, and we get the comments like saying stick to food or like this is political nonsense or, you know, we get like some Trumpy comments, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: We, we consider that a win because we're like, okay, yeah. these people are, we've lost these people. These people know what we're doing now. They know what we're about and they're not coming back. Good.
1: Okay. Like, we mm-hmm. have
0: to, because we have to change our audience. We have to, and we have to change who we're talking to if we're going to change intrinsically who we are. And that's basically what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, lifestyle publications changing who they are at their core. And that's going to mean sacrificing audience. And it has to happen. And it can be pleasant.
3: That's interesting too, because it's like, yeah, do you want to be a publication that is making it easy and comfortable for people to you know, be racist or check out of the context that we're all living in, or, you know, like there is this kind of choice of like, do we want to enable that or not? And Uh yeah, that's interesting. Awesome. Well, (sighs) David, I appreciate you so much. I think this conversation is like gone in, in a bunch of directions that we wouldn't normally have talked about. And I think it's super helpful. And I think that like I don't know, it's just, it's cool to see so much crossover between all of these different segments of of media.
2: Exactly. Yeah, no, this has been a fantastic conversation. And yeah, I can't thank you enough for coming on.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so glad you guys invited me. It's really fun. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you so much to David for joining us on the show today. You can and should follow him on Twitter. He is at, at David Tamarkin and Tamarkin is T-A-M-A-R-K-I-N. And you should keep up with his work over at Epicurious. Like we were saying in the show, there's all sorts of plant-based um articles over there and just like really great, interesting stuff that he's doing with food. So you should keep up with him.
3: And you can also follow us on Twitter at real hot take. I'm at Amy Westerbell and Mary is at Mary Hegler.
2: Right. And like we said earlier, you should subscribe to our newsletter. We're doing great stuff over there. Everything from movie reviews, like, have you seen beast of the Southern wild recently? So good. It hasn't been recent enough hasn't been recent enough we're also doing original reporting to climate grief essays um amy just did one on climate grief and motherhood like we're Mm -hmm. we're just we're doing good stuff and you should subscribe for it we don't want you to miss out
3: that's right you'll also get bonus clips from this show and general rants we've got a lot to say (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're not saying it on Twitter anymore. You gotta pay us. So we have a premium version with all of those features as well as that's like $7 a month, as we said earlier, or $80 a year, or you can sign up for a founding membership at 210 and you get a free shirt.
3: That's right. But we understand that not everyone can do that right now. And we firmly believe that that should not keep you from keeping up with the most important story of our time. So we produce a free newsletter, too, that has a roundup of weekly coverage, a free feature from us, and teasers for all the good stuff in the premium newsletter.
2: Yeah. And we have merchandise now. We've got hats, we've got shirts, we've got mugs, and we're getting even more pretty soon. We'll be adding some new stuff to the store in terms of shirts Uh, they just deliver, and they are beautiful. Um, And if you have shirts or whatever, please send us pictures. We love seeing our community. Yes. All right. That's about
3: it for this episode. Our next episode, we're going to be talking to Indigenous rights reporter Rebecca Nagel. If you've got questions about that or want to ask Rebecca anything about her previous work, please send those to hot takes at criticalfrequency.org.
2: Exactly. And make sure to leave us a rating or review in iTunes. It really does help us to find new listeners. and helps new listeners to find us. Um, If you have a negative review, we have a new system for that. You can send it to BrianCon at (laughs) earther.com. That's brian.kahn at earther.com.
3: That's right. Or again, head over to BP and Shell's podcast and leave them some snarky reviews. Always a good thing to do. But you should do, do
2: that. <laughs> yeah, but you should do that even if you give us a good review. That's so true. Just, just do that.
3: Just do it. That's right. All right, we'll talk to you all yeah. again soon. All right, keep fucking that chicken. <laughs>